Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, one of my particular favorites, Margaret Kilgallen. My guest is Courtney Finn, the curator of Margaret Kilgallen, That's Where the Beauty Is. The exhibition, which originated at the Aspen Art Museum last year, opens at MoCA Cleveland on January 31st. It'll be on view through May 17th. It's the first major Kilgallen exhibition since curator Yunji Ju organized in the Sweet By and By for Red Cat in Los Angeles in 2005. Kilgallen is accompanied by an excellent catalog published by Aspen Art Press. Amazon offers it for $32. Kilgallen, who died in 2001 at just 33 years old, was among the artists who came to significance while working in and around San Francisco's Mission District in the late 20th century. Her work foregrounded a do-it-yourself aesthetic, while also referring to, and indeed building on, the art and graphic design histories of America, especially the histories connected to the American West. On the second segment, Kate Kolwitz at the Getty Research Institute. But first, Courtney Finn, after the break. Nineteenth-century Gothic literature meets San Francisco film noir in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, opening this Saturday at the Legion of Honor Museum. Known for playful artworks that challenge traditional storytelling, Alexander Singh explores the motif of the doppelganger through a fantastical, thrilling short film presented alongside a selection of prints, sculptures, and paintings from the museum's collection. Mirrored walls inside the exhibition create a visually striking space from which to contemplate the doppelganger motif. Catch a glimpse of your doppelganger in Alexander Singh, A Gothic Tale, opening this Saturday at San Francisco's Legion of Honor Museum. Visit legionofhonor.org for details. A new exhibition at the Getty Center showcases more than 200 never-before-seen treasures from the museum's extensive photographs collection. Unseen, 35 years of collecting photographs, spans the history of the medium from its earliest years to the present day and highlights visual associations between works from different times and places, encouraging visitors to make fresh discoveries. Learn more about this must-see exhibition at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Norman Rockwell, American Freedom, the first comprehensive exhibition devoted to Norman Rockwell's iconic depictions of the four freedoms outlined by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from fear, and freedom from want. The presentation explores how Rockwell's 1943 paintings came to be embraced by millions of Americans, providing crucial aid to the war effort and taking their place among the most indelible images in the history of American art. Visit mfah.org slash Norman Rockwell for more. And we're back. Courtney Finn, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Tyler, so pleased to be here. Margaret Kilgallen is a major artist who had a short and, uh, at least in terms of the way the work lived, often fugitive career. Sorry, that's the worst pun in world history. <laughs> 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 I think she would probably appreciate it, actually. Before we get into her work and uh, and what it was about and how she made it, could you sketch for us the place and time in which she rose to significance? So I should say that I first encountered her work when I was an undergraduate, 2000, going to art school, studying printmaking and fiber. And it sort of really encapsulated this moment that was really being discussed in classes that I was attending about San Francisco, about artists who had sort of 
moved west at a specific moment in time and really developed an artistic community. So loosely described as the mission school, which is obviously a very contested term for some of the participants, both participating or left out of that narrative as defined by Glenn Hufland. San Francisco critic. Yeah. Thank you. So a group of artists who are really living and working in the Bay Area, many of which living and working in the Mission and Tenderloin neighborhoods who are thinking about art's role both inside and outside of the institution simultaneously. I would say a sort of emphasis on the handmade, an emphasis on making work that was accessible to everyone to large swaths of audience to communicating both with one another and people who might not ever set foot into a traditional gallery or institutional museum space. I would say a sort of fugitive to borrow your word or kind of thumbing one's nose at the establishment, an interest in mark making and sort of resistance against the ubiquitous commercialism and sort of technology that was starting to creep into the city, a sort of way of embracing one's body and material that was being found. So a lot of found paint, found material, things that were being brought into the street, into the studio, and then back out into space. And so I can name, if you want, I can sketch out some of the artists that she's mostly associated with, including, of course, her husband and partner, Barry McGee, Alicia McCarthy, Chris Johansson, many of whom have gone on to sort of illustrious careers and really set a stage for art that people associate with San Francisco from that sort of moment of time um, in the sort of late 80s, uh, early 90s into the 2000s. Alicia McCarthy and Barry McGee have been guests on this show. We will have links to those episodes on the, on the show page. You write in a really, really good catalog essay that a, quote, notion of the past tense and the future perfect is equally embedded within Kilgallen's work which renews and reconfigures a distinctly American, old-time, historical past into an in-between space, disrupting our understanding of the present, which I think pretty much nails it. What did she do that was both old-time past and, and, and present, and how do we see that idea manifesting itself in the work? Sure. I think one of the best examples and the one that I really focus on in the essay that really, I think, pulls this out for viewers is Main Drag, which is a large scale installation. It was the last piece that she made before she passed in 2001 for a show, East Meets West, uh, folk art and fantasy that was at the ICA Philadelphia that Alex Baker curated. It has over 285 elements, some which had made previous, have shown up in previous installations. So there's components of it that were shown in her Hammer show, components that were shown at her Deitch Project show in 1999 that have been reconfigured or re-juxtaposed near other elements. And I'll say the thing that sort of really encapsulates this in-between space is her use of a sort of American vernacular, both in language, so the actual words that appear all over the piece, so terms like kook, references to Matoki Sloter, the, uh, the old-time musician that she used to listen to while she made her work, and even the title, The Main Drag, and thinking about what we colloquially call the sort of center part of our town or the space in which you stroll or how towns are built around small business and in the installation of main drag, 
there is an actual sort of center road in which things are happening across. You see a woman with a surfboard walking towards the ocean, and it has a sort of nostalgia for a sort of aesthetic that reminds me of the Depression era kind of uh, vision of America. Things are kind of boarded up. Things aren't necessarily like in the best shape. But at the same time, if you look really closely, there are www.com website references. And you realize that she's both referencing our kind of idea of the past without having been present for it, and maybe a sort of reflection of where she actually is in the world. So having spoken with Barry and other people in her life, a lot of the imagery is like coming from places that she would visit up and down the California coast. So the liquor store might be pulled from the mission neighborhood that she lived in and then placed on a long space that she would go to in Santa Cruz. And so she's sort of pulling and mining and creating her own language and pictorial references that are both located in actual space, but also a sort of imagining of what they might have looked like before they got overpopulated or were moving into the 21st century and kind of stitching those two things together. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with typography and the rendering of language, the choice of language, and are kind of piecing together and almost trying to read the scene or the installation to try and understand at what moment in time and what location we're actually entering into. And I should say another component of the installation that really resonates for me in that aspect is the inclusion of these two sort of surf shack towers that are built out of hand-painted pieces of wood that are then literally shacked together to look like temporary colorful dwellings. And they force your body to move around the space. And you start to realize that everything included in the installation has been pieced together like a quilt. And that because some of the elements are familiar from other installations of her work, and you can see how they're actually attached together. It sort of feels like a weaving together or a quilting together of something that somebody else might have given you or has coming from a different era and time period and being sort of rendered anew by this by this artist and by her hand. The kind of thing that makes you wonder if she knew of Sheila Hicks's practice and how Sheila Hicks has done the same thing with, with her materials for, for many, many years now. Although I can't think of why Margaret Kilgallen would, would know of or be paying attention to Sheila Hicks. It's just that Sheila Hicks was doing that probably before anybody else I can think of. No, it's true. But there is something about the way in which textile practice and the sort of craft sensibility of, of, of weaving and textiles comes together. I think a lot about how for Margaret, even though there isn't necessarily so much fabric in the work, although there are a couple of really incredible pieces that are painted on, on coated or painted drop cloth that are then stitched together, there's definitely a point in which she obviously got a sewing machine and it entered into the studio. And so things were officially stitched and thinking about her work as a book conservator and the way that books are stitched together, that this idea of piecing together that is maybe both in quilting practice, but also weaving where the structure and the content in order to be successful, a textile piece, the, the sort of formal aesthetic design content of it and the structure have to coexist because otherwise the material won't hold itself up. And I think about that a lot in terms of how she works, that there is a really broad craft sensibility to the way she's working, even though she is still painting and drawing. 
talking about pasts in Kilgallen's work, what art historical pasts do you see her accessing and engaging and, as ever, reconfiguring? Yeah, I think Janelle Porter writes a really incredibly beautiful essay for the catalog in which she makes a really interesting comparison to, to Joan Brown's work and thinking about both the use, both the subject matter in relationship to the ocean, to the act of swimming, which is a central feature that you see in Margaret's work, who is an avid swimmer and surfer, but also um, the sort of application of color and the way in which patterns show up. I've been thinking recently a lot more about Wallace Burnman and the Semina culture and this sort of idea of creating a culture and a community and the way that language works in her work. It's not something that I have read or spoken about with anyone that she cited as an influence, but I think in particular at that moment of thinking about California history and artists, that is something that I've been thinking a little bit more about. And also in a really odd way, a lot of the poets that were kind of working and thinking in San Francisco and the Bay Area, uh, Lawrence Fering Leggetti, the way that broadsides were distributed, even thinking through to how Kevin Killian uses language and his relationship with Dodie Bellamy. So while those aren't necessarily historical, I feel like there's a really interesting interdisciplinary nature of the work that comes or that is associated often both with the Bay Area, but with California artists that mixes language and literary structures with objects that I feel like really kind of resonates in her work. I think one of the most exciting things in her work is the way she advances the American landscape tradition by adding to it. I mean, the most, we'll come to Kilgallen's trees in a minute, but leaving them aside, you know, the most important American landscapes in art before the Civil War are Niagara Falls and the Hudson Valley and the White Mountains. And then from 1861 forward, it's California in the West. And Kilgallen, you know, I think finds clever, smart ways to add to that history. What types of sites is, is she adding? I think she's adding sites that are sort of often unseen. So thinking through to that, like you think of the grandeur of like Ansel Adams. I think of the grandeur of Carlton Watkins, but you may continue. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. Um, I also think a lot about Hopper <laughs> and these sort of uh, kind of like everyday Scenes of like the railroad train, the house at dusk, the automat, you know, the hotel rooms, often which are, you know, solitary figures or there isn't much going on. And, and the way that these sites in which not much is happening, but are somehow where everything is happening. And so for me, there's there's this sort of decay and also vibrancy that's happening simultaneously where things are maybe a little bit broken down or not quite as active as we had all imagined or it's not the heyday of this moment or place. It's maybe a little bit dirty and a little bit abandoned, but it has that sort of rough around the edges, diamond in the rough, not to use an Aladdin pun, but quality to it where maybe it just needs like a little spruce of paint and for people to sort of update it. And so for me, the not not necessarily the figures, but the spaces in which the figures are dwelling or walking or riding towards represent these sort of like sidelines or the, the sort of margins of American cities, what you might kind of see from looking out of a train window, but you're not necessarily the place that you're going to pull over and stop. 
I mentioned Kilgallen's trees. Um, there are lots of visual motifs or pictographs or or what have you that that recur across Kilgallen's oeuvre, but nothing like trees. Is there anything about her trees that particularly strikes you, or you know, why do you think she painted as many of them as she did? I think there is something about them that really encapsulates the vastness of the landscape in America. And I think it makes me think of the old Audubon guides, which I know was definitely a source of reference for her and something that she poured over and the way in which they would issue these like North American guide to birds and to trees and to butterflies as if this sort of way of cataloging and understanding the slight differences around us would help us have a better understanding of the place in which we reside. I also think it really speaks to how much the physical landscape changes when you move from east to west. And I think a lot about her being from Maryland and the D.C. area, going west to Colorado College and the shift between being from the East Coast myself, the shift from that landscape the first time that you see it and you realize how vastly different the trees can look in a place that isn't actually so, so far away from where you originally started. And then that shift all the way when you hit the Pacific Ocean. So I think also about how much the way those trees create and define the identity of landscapes, in particular, like the palm tree and its relationship to how we understand a city like Los Angeles, they become sort of like ubiquitous stand-ins for places that we seem to recognize or ways in which we ascribe narrative or identities to places without having been there. And I think there's something about collections and the collections of such kinds of trees and the way in which geography is mapped that I think appeal to her. So I always think they become kind of like part of her extended alphabet. And so you can start to see where specific ones reoccur when they meet their friends and how they change. It also really, you can see how much of a student she was in terms of really examining the differences, how if something becomes just a little bit uh, narrower towards the edge, it actually is a different kind of plant than a specific, than this kind. And so like, I think about it a lot with poison ivy, like the differences between poison ivy and poison oak and poison sumac and how plants and the way that we understand them are like families and different generations. So those are the sort of relationships that first come to mind for me. I, when I look at Kilgallen's trees, I realize that she's studied 19th and early 20th century California art history really carefully. You know, from Watkins's 1861 pictures of the giant sequoias in the Mariposa Grove forward, there is this art, artist address of these enormous, you know, sequoia and in other parts of California redwoods, you know, where artists are figuring out how to get the damn thing in, in you know, a 16-inch rectangle. And, 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 and so, you know, they look up and, you know, tilt the camera back or, 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 or tilt the perspective back in the case of, say, Bierstadt. And you get this very particular way of looking up in a way that makes the base of a tree look even bigger than it is relative to the top of the tree. And she clearly noticed that. I mean, in the great 2000 untitled painting that's in SF MoMA's collection, probably her standalone object, you know, so not counting rib size installation masterpiece, it's, I mean, that's just absolutely a riff on the Watkins-Bierstadt tree address. And I think she also noticed, I mean, everybody from the 1860s on who writes about their experience of 
California's sequoia groves or or the redwood forests on the North Coast, writes about how, you know, when they're in them, they know these are enormous trees, but because everything in those groves are, are you know, except for the ferns, it's kind of a monoculture of trees, they seem kind of normal-sized. And then you kind of walk up to one and try to put your arms around it and realize how enormous it really is. And that sense of, yeah, you know, really comes across in in her treatment of the thing. I mean, in that 2000 painting at SF MoMA, the tree is kind of the smallest thing in the painting. <laughs> no, so true. And I think actually she plays with scale in that way because there are things that are that you think should be small that become big and vice versa. And you realize that the power that the impact of the image has is is not dependent entirely on scale. And that she really changes your perspective on what you should be paying attention to. And for me, that's really evident also in the way in which she applies the paint to the surface and how it's not necessarily as labor intensive. Like I think of how how layered Bierstadt's landscapes are and how he's really trying to put you into a place so that you get a sense of what the wonder and where you're looking at. He's like really trying to give you an experience of the grandeur of the American West. And she manages to do the same thing, but so almost effortlessly and with such a simple color palette and a lot less a layering in, in terms of a formal application of paint. At all times, she speeds past precious. Yeah. Who were the Mujeres Muralistas? How did Kilgallen know their work and how did she engage with it? One of the things that uh, she wrote a little bit about and really started to reference a lot in her work was how much the neighborhood in which she lived really impacted her practice, both as a source of inspiration for a color palette or a formal aesthetic, but also how much the Mission neighborhood was a vital inspiration in terms of showcasing public art and mark making by the various people who lived there. And so that kind of cultural public art movement and the sort of legacy of the Chicano mural movement coming out of the Southwest was sort of all around her. And so the Mueras Muralistas had painted several murals that she would have seen, including the peace mural that was on the women's building, which is on 18th Street, that was founded in 1971, which was the first women-owned community space in San Francisco. And so it was from an engagement with her local community and with the people that she encountered. So I don't know how in-depthly aware she was of the movement's history, but in terms of being exposed to it visually and being really interested in the way in which people marked space in order to create community and in order to sort of beautify a neighborhood or a space that might be otherwise perceived as neglected in a way to sort of push out a narrative that reinforced what they believed in was something that I, that I think resonated with her and that she seemed to both carry in her own practice in the works that you see both in this exhibition, but really is what propelled her to do a lot of public art and to work with other organizations to help them paint signs or become really invested in painting public murals and public works herself. Is there a relationship between that San Francisco mural history and the way she painted? Not just not just flat, but but freehand. Mm -hmm. The technique is really similar to where it is a lot to do with 
using the site and space and scaling it, but not scaling it in a way that now we often do with SketchUp or Photoshop and like trying out very, very different kind of renderings, but sort of like on the fly directly with chalk and then going freehand for the paint application. There's also a very similar, I feel like, color palette in terms of popping popping things forward and a way of flattening perspective that allows the piece to be read from up close and far away a sort of like idea of yeah of how a narrative might be read in multiple sight lines that I think is also super interesting that there's an awareness that the piece is experienced both in an intimate kind of like daily use uh, close to the building but also wants to be seen as sort of like a beacon and read from afar. Well, since you brought up her palette, the reds uh, she uses are, I mean, they, they aren't anybody else's. They're, 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 they're very much hers. Are there other colors she uses that are distinctive or that you have reasons for use that you think are as specific as, as the red was? Yeah, I think you see also this sort of kind of like a dusty yellow color that often stands in for what might traditionally be used as white. There are no clean white in in any of her works. There is always a sort of like grit or grime or like a well-worn in quality. A coastal humidity. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I was going to say it's kind of like that the very understanding that weather brings with it sand and dirt and that nothing is like things are always sweating and clean <laughs> nothing is clean <laughs> i would say that there's a a particular use almost of a really dark brown as opposed to a black so i feel like even in the parts that are meant they're meant to be read more as dark and they really sort of evoke that that sort of landscape that I feel like the dense redwood forest, I feel like a lot of it has to do with the landscape in terms of the colors of the roots of the trees and the trunks, the way that light moves in in that part of California and what happens when you're kind of densely crowded in a forest or in a cityscape and then you get to the bluffs of Lindemar and you see the ocean. So I feel like there's a sort of muted sandy quality to her colors there's also the sort of appearance of this kind of lightish pukish grayish green color that reoccurs that it's not the same green in the in the studies of the different kinds of plants but makes it sway into the sort of background screen but i think I think there's like a mutedness that if you just see it as a color, like a color sample. So one of the things is in a lot of the ephemera that we have in the exhibition, you can see a collection of the different kinds of paint samples and the colors that she would routinely use and how she mixed her paints. And there's a vibrancy to them that happens when they're in the paintings that they don't seem to hold when it's just a paint swatch uh, in a notebook. Were there any Japanese painting techniques that were important to her? And if so, how did she find them? How did she come to find them? Yeah, so she, you said it before, but she was a sort of avid student of art history. And the Japanese woodblock technique, and I should say she studied printmaking in undergrad at Colorado College. And I think you can see the the rich history of printmaking in so many applications of her work, despite the fact that In the exhibition, which has over 95 pieces, we only have, I think, six actual prints. 
but this this idea of the flattening and the mark making and the application that comes from the history of woodblock printing in Japan in particular and the way that uh, color would get laid over the kind of use of glaze and transparency and then also this idea of the narratives and stories that were discussed in that kind of woodblock printing the sort of everyday scenes of life like it's moving away from the grandeur of, you know, religious or history painting and tableaus. It's really trying to sort of create these like simple and elegant scenes, uh, really distilled simple forms. And I think there's something else about the carving of the blocks and the history of that in relationship both to Yukoi, the Japanese woodblock printing, but also thinking about not just the broadside movement, but the way in which, you know, American wanted posters and concert posters and letterpress was invented and how much that idea of placing the type and then actually the type making a mark into the paper. So it's not just that the letter or the language or the story is being conveyed, but that there's an actual action or choreography or dance that is happening between the making that's happening all before you even get to the finished project or product that I think is really important to her in terms of how she approach making her work. In about 2000, Kilgallen makes a number of works on paper of dots, liney dots that appear serially. They remind me very, very much of uh, work Ruth Asaba made, especially early in, in her career in the Black Mountain years. Most of America has only discovered Asawa in the last five years or so, but San Francisco has known for decades. That early, perhaps earliest seriality in American art um, of Osawa's might even seem to come into Kilgallen's work and her treatment of what reads as oceanscapes, the serial, the serial way she had of portraying waves, which also, for that matter, recalls the way Osawa built her, scrup, her, her sculptures, the same kind of form. Do you think she knew of or was looking at Osawa? I would hope so. And I would think so. I'm just thinking like in terms of the sort of her times doing her MFA at Stanford, the sort of voracious reading that she was doing, I would think so because to me, there's a really interesting dialogue and commonality between that work in the sense that there is an emphasis on using the natural world as a source element and the way that they both think about the line and the aesthetic concept of the line and how it sort of interweaves as a mark of the hand is something that I think is really similar. I hadn't thought about those particular works in relationship to Asawa. I was thinking more about the lightness and the use of the line. But I do, yeah, I just think there's something that she talks about the economy of the line, if I'm getting the quote right, Ruth Asawa, that makes me think of the line, no pun intended. Now that was a bad oral pun. Um, <laughs> that makes me think of the quote by, by Kilgallen where she talks about trying to make a line by hand and the, the perfection and the effort and the work that goes into trying to draw a straight line by hand and how no matter how perfect it looks from far away, when you get up close, there'll be a tiny waver. And for her, that's where the beauty is because that's where you see the mark of the human hand, but maybe the person behind it, the intention of setting out that mark. And there, there's something for me about 
how Asawa talks about the way that a line and the economy align, how it can like move in between space and how it's a thing that joins everything together, that there's a nice sort of poetic parallel between. Yeah, I wonder. It's something for art historians to maybe go go look at. It's something I will. Well, we have a bunch of her sketchbooks from her time at Stanford that are included in the exhibition. And I've spent obviously some time poring over them. But I know that in in included in some of the material that we showcased in the vitrine that will be in the show was some of the slide lists and the library lists of things that she took out of the library. So I'll have to double check to see if there was anything around Ruth Asawa that is mentioned. And I'll let you know. One more art historical, I wonder. The painting Money to Loan, Paintings for the San Francisco Bus Shelter Posters from, from 2000, so a very late work a work that's now in the collection of the Hammer Museum. It's it's one of only a couple places in the oeuvre I think I see her looking at men. Is she looking at Larry Pittman? Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned this because it's actually a note that we found scrawled in one of her sketchbooks in relationship. I'm not sure if it's specifically, I don't think she had had the title for the piece for the Hammer, but it's around the same time period when she's thinking about both the piece for the Hammer and how it would later get translated and actually used as posters in the bus shelters in the city. And I think she was thinking a lot, both just just about the way in which, I don't know, his method of, of language, of, of material. I'm not sure if they works ever, if they actually ever crossed paths, but I think, you know, his sort of investigation into the history telling of textiles and language and craft is something that seems to be sort of, you know, sort of overlapping with some of her interests. And I think if you think about that sort of like political and personal iconography that we associate with Pittman, it's something that she is also developing for her own practice and her own self. And in this very work, the, 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 the tree, which here is, is, is tiny, even though our brain makes it bigger, shoes and, and signage, which she, it all, you know, it looks like she's clip-arting it, pasting it into place, kind of, the, kind of, kind of the way he does. <laughs> no, exactly. And I think it's, it's kind of that densely painted surface in that way where it's both kind of socially and politically discussing the sort of history of, you know, the way in which communities are built and who has access to what, but also fusing it with her own personal memory. Annie Philbin said actually that there's a component of this work that references the gentleman who was like the lead parking garage attendant at the hammer at the time and so there we have a photograph of him as well that we found with a lot of her material from the work at this time so I think there is something that's really interesting about there is an iconography and a real location in the time in which something is made but also a real looking at who else is making work around you and the ways in which that has been significant, especially around discourse of those who have been marginalized or the contested body, you know, a sort of way to understand your own psyche. We've mentioned Barry McGee a couple times. Um, McGee was, of course, Kilgallen's husband. Is it possible to divine the influence of, of one on the other? Or in kind of those years of the late 90s, are they working so much around each other and drinking of the same soup that it's just hard to tell? 
I think for me, it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell where in some cases an idea or a way of working begins and how it changes and the way that they, how much time they spend together, whether sharing a studio, you know, as a couple, tagging trains, traveling, it's really hard for me to tell. But I do think that when you look at the works, you see a very different sensibility and a very different direction, but you can see how maybe they pushed each other. And I can't imagine, I think in any creative partnership, like that you, it must be both the most rewarding and frustrating thing to have somebody who you respect, who also understands the temperament and vulnerability around artistic practice and that need to make things and the desire to put things out into the world and the way to try and get what's in your head out into an object or image form. So that it must have been incredibly rewarding to be able to share that with someone and then also frustrating when you're doing it at the same time and maybe perhaps things are melting together or blurring and you're not sure if that's like the direction you want to go in. So I think it's it's hard to tell. Although there are ways that they clearly differentiated from each other as opposites, his use of shading, her use of flatness. Sure. Even just if you look at his characters versus hers, his often, you know, predominantly male, hers are female, hers are sort of taking up positions of power, like larger than life scaled, often bigger than their male counterparts, like really active, riding bikes, smoking, fighting, surfing. And a lot of times his characters are, you know, engaging in emotional turmoil or struggle, cowering a little downtrodden. And, and I think it's, maybe consumed by pattern and other parts of their environment. And so, yeah, I think you can see that they're struggling or thinking through through narrative and, and language in a completely different way. I feel like that's, for me, one of the things that really sets, sets Margaret's work apart is her continued investigation and typography and the way in which we read when we encounter an image and how much of that sort of push and pull really helps her to create a larger experience. Her use of words in her paintings, I mean, they're not just there to refer to old-timey signs, but they are they are word games, fly right, half-cocked. She's, you know, winking and nodding and nodding and winking, and and I don't know if we think or if you think that goes back to her professional career as a book conservator at the San Francisco Public Library, or if she came to words another way, maybe through, say, Dorothea Lange? I would say it's probably a combination. I think the the book conservatory work and the, the library was, I think, a real sort of sense of building on or understanding how books are made and the caretaking of those things, and then maybe an exposure to the sort of behind the scenes of the library, which I have to say as a complete avid reader and book file, I would totally love to have had that experience. So I'm very jealous. But I, I think it's also from art history. I think a lot of it comes from uh, studying printmaking and studying how the narratives of the places in which we live are told and who gets to, to tell them and whose images are being shown and whose voices are being prioritized and how much weight material culture places on language. So I feel like she's getting trying or asking us maybe even more demanding that we sort of question what it is that we think that we know and really reminding us that 
there's more than the surface provides that we have to that will be rewarded if we dig deeper behind just an initial initial read. And I do think like thinking about Dorothea Ling and the the Farm Security Administration and and also the way that language is used in terms of resistance and protest is definitely a, a lineage that is finding its way into her work. Even even the way Lang used uh, billboards and signs as compositional elements, not not just for their meaning, not just for what they said, but as kind of anchors as the thing the picture was was built around. And in Kilgallen's work, words are almost always a part of the a whole, a, a, a larger whole. They're, they're, they they hold the thing together. Yeah, because they're structural. So it's not just about reading them for understanding, but they actually physically have weight. And in some cases, I think, you know, you can see them, they're like carved or layered. She she draws the drop shadow as if to remind you that they are, in fact, objects themselves. And I think the billboards, too, in, in, in Lang's photographs, it's also really pinpointing a specific moment in time and a kind of formal aesthetic and a location where you see certain things only in certain parts of the country or things shift. And the way that we know that we're moving from one place to another is because there are those aesthetic shifts. So the way that a billboard places you at a specific part of the landscape, whereas once you move into a cityscape, the kinds of signage or, you know, iconic markers by which you can locate yourself in space really start to change. Yeah, that's great about the drop shadows on the words because, of course, the people are, are super flat. It's the words that get yeah. a little bit of depth. three-dimensional, right? <laughs> Courtney Finn, thanks very much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Testing the very definition of portraiture, Sheldon Museum of Art explores nuances in the genre from the late 19th century to today. Person of Interest, on view from January 24th through July 5th, 2020, asks open-ended questions about self-fashioning, cultural memory, and performance of identity. In doing so, the exhibition prompts conversations about race and representation, institutional power, lived experience, and other relevant and timely issues. Person of Interest features works by artists ranging from John Singer Sargent, Robert Henri, and Marisol, to Radcliffe Bailey, Nathaniel Mary Quinn, and Renee Stout. To learn more, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents a 20-year survey of the work of Robin O'Neill. Organized by the Modern's associate curator, Allison Hurst, the exhibition Robin O'Neill, We the Masses explores the artist's fruitful career from 2000 to the present and includes major multi-panel drawings, signature works of graphite on paper, collages, and the animated film We the Masses 2011. This in-depth presentation is the first to examine O'Neill's formal and conceptual developments over the past two decades. On view in Fort Worth, Texas, October 18th, 2019 through February 9th, 2020. Welcome back. My next guest is Art Institute of Chicago curator Jay Clark. She joins me to discuss Kate Kolwitz, Prince Process Politics, which is at the Getty Research Institute through March 29th. The exhibition examines Kolwitz's process and the focuses of her social and political engagement. From the Getty, the show will travel to Chicago. Jay Clark, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for inviting me. 
Are some artists, certain artists, more likely to have their artwork read through biography than others? Well, I've always had a theory that women artists and mentally unstable male artists tend more than any others to have their art read via biography. And I think one reason, you know, if you look at someone like Edvard Munch, he wrote a great deal about his art and his life, and but he often did so through the third person. And so people often think that they they know the artist because he wrote so much about himself, but he wrote with an eye to future publication. So one can maybe be a bit skeptical about what he wrote about himself and how he interpreted his own art. And also the fact that he has himself been read in such a psychobiographical way, in part because he was considered to be emotionally unstable. So that's the sort of mentally unstable male artist. I think women artists much more often tend to be read biographically. Because? <laughs> well, in, in the case of Kate Kolvitz, she's, I think, in part read a great deal biographically because she wrote so much and she left such a great personal record behind her. She wrote a lot of letters. She had a diary. And those were very soon, very early in her career, they were published. So I think people tend to read, because she left such a large documented record behind her, people tend to read specific works via her biography. So something happened on a certain day in her diary, then they connected to something made that year or earlier or later with her, with her life. The phrase you use in your catalog essay is that gender and biography collapsed into each other in, in, in her case, which, which makes a lot of sense. So how, how was it that her personal documentation, if you will, was published so early? And did, do we know if she intended for her work to be read or considered through it, or if that was a frustration for her? She didn't write actually that much about biography and her work, but there was some editing done by her her heirs when she passed away because she supposedly had an affair with someone at some point in her career and that was expunged from the letter. So not all of the letters were documented. There was such a great interest in her throughout her entire career. I mean, the, it's kind of amazing. She lived through the Wilhelmine era, the Weimar era, and then the Nazi era, and she died in 1945. And there was a great deal of interest in her work before the war, before the Second World War, and then after the Second World War. So I think with that interest in her work led to biographies very soon after her death. She was very famous in Germany. She's been on stamps. She's probably very well known in Germany, lesser known probably in the U.S. So before we talk about the issues related to her work being read through biography, maybe we should establish some of the ways in which biography has been read into her work. Are there a couple examples that particularly motivate you slash drive you nuts? The one image that I think is among the most powerful in her graphic work is called Woman with Dead Child from 1903. And generally, when it's discussed by art historians, they will say something like, here we see Colvitz and her son who died 11 years later, people say this is a foreshadowing of, of her son's Peter's death in the First World War. Now, how in the world would she know that <laughs> in 1903 that her son was going to die in World War? So people always say it's, you know, the artist is foreshadowing. Well, that's crazy. That doesn't make any sense. But and then people often use this quote from her diaries or her letters in which she said, I used myself and my son, Peter. I looked at us in a mirror as I drew the drawing that was then preparatory for the print. But just because she uses herself and her son as models does not mean that the work of art is about her and her son. 
it may have nothing to do with it. So there's this this immediate collapsing of of artists and biography and a reading of the work. So that's one example. So using that work as as our example, and we'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, what are some ways in which you would prefer for us to think and, and address and even contextualize it? Well, part of it is um, this amazing print portfolio she did called The Peasant's War. And this relates to that series. It's usually seen as a sort of separate work on its own, but it relates to the series in which a woman goes into a field to find her dead son. It's a field of a field of dead bodies. The Peasant's War, which was based on an actual revolt during the Reformation. In any case, so it's it's part of that context is another way to look at it. And another way to look at it is just this visceral, almost animalistic mourning of a mother who has lost her child. And if you see a close-up of the woman's face, it almost looks simian. In, in, in the print. In the print, yes. The, the form of the woman and the late child fill almost the entire rectangle. The enormity and kind of nearly full field coverage of the two figures is kind of a metaphor for grief. It's kind of hard to... For the all-consumption, all-consumingness of grief, anyway, and and it's kind of um, hard to hard to miss. Absolutely, and she was also very interested in Michelangelo's Pietà and was studying that at the time. And she first called this work of art a related work of art, Pietà. One issue we can get when biography is used to explain a woman's work is that quite often cliched stereotypes of womanhood are used as a filter rather than uh, actual address of the work. Did Kolwitz's work suffer from having critics read it through the lens of cliched, stereotyped ideas of what women did and who women were? Definitely, definitely uh, an issue for her. She, I mean, in the in her early career, the sort of trope was her work is so good you can't imagine it's by a woman. At the same, on the other side of the same coin, negative criticism would say something like she's too masculine. Her work is too too masculine, too manly. And at the time, there were two gendered terms around 1900. One was called the man-vibe, which was called a man-woman. So a question of a very strong, you know, a strong woman who, so although the, the press didn't necessarily call her a man-vibe, a man-woman, that was sort of the, the implication. Then there was another term at the time called das dritte Geschlecht, which is the third sex. So a question of either a man or a man being perceived as overly feminine or a woman being perceived as overly masculine. And these were, you know, again, they may may not have been terms specifically described to Kolwitz, but calling her overly masculine is, is a way of getting towards that. And these are sort of issues that were swirling around at the time as women came into the workforce, as women were becoming artists, there was a sense of unease and thus the desire to create these negative terms and negative stereotypes around so-called liberated smart women. Julius Elias, am I pronouncing that name right? Writes in, you know, provides a great example of this in 1917. It's a an almost preposterously loaded quote considering it only contains about 40 words. Frau Kolwitz has been given high praise for male energy and fearlessness, but anyone who understands her oscillations and gradations, loaded, knows a call like hers with so many shades and expectations and soft longing can only come from the heart of a woman. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it starts out so good you can't believe it's by a woman, and then the criticism changes to this could only have been made by a woman. Yeah, there's some really, some real juicy quotes about Colvitz, I tell you. 
I, I found myself thinking a lot about the way um, August Sonder presented women, and particularly the partners, wives, and lovers of artists. When I was when I was reading that section of your essay in which you talk about the third sex and such, in the 1920s, so after World War One, new eyes come to Colvitz's work, including Kurt Glaser, Louise Deal, and Alfred Kuhn. Did their representation or did their consideration of Colvitz's work take a turn from from say the wartime and pre-war considerations? It it took a turn in a sense, but it just sort of reinscribed her into different sort of gender stereotypes. They were less overt in saying things like "so good at you know you can't believe it's by a woman." They don't say anything that overt, but they do start using her biography to a greater extent to quote unquote explain her art. And interestingly, in as they're using her biography to describe her art, they're only talking about certain kinds of works of art. So art that doesn't isn't easily described via her biography is often not discussed. So, for example, there's a number of lithographs she does in the teens and the early 20s and then through her later career of smiling, happy mothers holding their children or happy couples holding their children. That's sort of written out of the Colvitz literature because I think it's easier to see her as the woman who's struggling on behalf of the masses or a mourning mother. These sort of happier scenes are, are rarely discussed. I want to come back to those happier scenes in a minute, but, but you also raised something there that pointed to another way in which Kolwitz's work was often considered, and that is the, the changing role and presence in society of women during the, the Weimar period. They entered the labor force in, in greater numbers, often in specific fields. Did the response to Kolwitz's work get caught up in that change in German society during the Weimar period, maybe in ways that weren't specifically about her work, but just ended up getting caught up in the flow? I would say definitely. I mean, one interesting thing about Kolwitz is she was the first woman artist in 1919 to be um, made a full professor at, or a full member of the Berlin Academy of Art. So that's, that in itself tells you something about changing societal norms. And I think definitely the perception of her work is wrapped up definitely in her time. There's no question about that. And if you think about it during the first world war, there were so many men at war that they needed women in the workforce as well. So that certainly changed things. And she became a very vocal she became very anti-war and started publishing in the newspaper her, you know, anti-war sentiments. So she became a more public figure in her role at the Berlin Academy, but also in, you know, in newspapers. She started creating a lot more works of art for social and political causes. So she put herself out there a lot more as well. You write about how in, in this period there's kind of a triple interpretation of her work as political and empathetic, uh, which aren't necessarily super gendered, empathetic maybe a little bit, but also as maternal. The women and child figures in artworks are particularly well known and often exhibited in the United States as, as you know, those are the Colwitzes we, we, we see most. Were writers looking at her work reading maternal into non-women and child artworks? I wouldn't say reading maternal, but definitely reading reading gender. This comes from the perspective of a woman, which is not entirely untrue, of course. I mean, the peasants wore this amazing print portfolio she publishes in 1908, it shows the peasants' war through the lens of a woman's, or through a woman's eyes. You mentioned the uh, sad Colwitz and happy Colwitz dichotomy a moment ago. It sounds like a, like a book title. 
what is the sad Colwitz and what is the happy Colwitz? And is there any evidence that she thought of them as as separate things or separate tracks? I mean, she she was very preoccupied with images of death in her work, death and uh, and the human struggle. And that is probably what she, that's what she's best known for. And I would say, you know, her images of death and suffering have given her sort of, you know, the, the reputation of the sad Colvitz. And again, the happy Colvitz isn't discussed, as I mentioned so much in the literature, but she addresses this herself and is one of my one of my reasons for being slightly skeptical about using her diaries and her letters as, quote unquote, proof of any particular image or any particular belief is she said at one point, and this is quoting another letter, so I know I'm being anachronistic here, but she says, my diaries are only half truths. And she said she usually wrote in her diaries when she was under some sort of stress or when she was really sad. I think she, I think she struggled with depression, certainly. Um, you could definitely tell that from her letters and her diaries. So again, this notion of them being half truths, the use of her diaries as, you know, quote unquote, factual biography, she even herself questioned. And, and of course, sad, to, to, to use a simplistic term, would have been unavoidable for any German artist of the period. I mean, during her life, Germany fights three significant wars. She would have known, I mean, everybody practically she would have known would have been affected by three wars. <laughs> Absolutely. And her her husband was a doctor for the urban working poor. So she saw, you know, unwanted pregnancy you know, abuse, you know, wives being abused by alcoholic husbands, starvation, extreme poverty. So she saw that on a daily basis and she, you know, didn't shy away from it, but she used those, those women and children and men as her models. One of the ironies of, of the address of Colvitz's work about which you write is that one of the least examined works in her oeuvre is, is her raped print. What does it show? Why have critics, curators, and historians mostly skipped over it? And why might now be a really good time to show and consider it in depth? It's a very difficult image. Um, it's a it's an image of a woman laying dead in a field of flowers and shrubs. She's been raped, and what barely visible to at the upper left is her daughter is looking over the fence at her. Her small her small daughter. And when I first started working in this series, I, I was realizing that people just skip over it. Historians during her lifetime skip over it. People rarely address the print. I think it's it's difficult. It's also not biographical. It's not about Colvitz. The Art Institute of Chicago in 1946 bought, uh, which is kind of a very interesting year, bought the preparatory drawing, the initial first date, hand colored by the artist, second date, etc. Up into the final image, we bought a series of seven prints. And I, I first thought it would be interesting to show them all because it kind of shows the, you know, her working process. And they're very rarely exhibited. They, I don't think they've ever all been exhibited, to my knowledge, at the Art Institute of Chicago since we've had them. So I brought a group of education colleagues together, some um, interns, people from different parts of the department, including different parts of the museum, including one of my colleagues who volunteers at, the, at a rape crisis hotline, just to say, all right, should we show these images? And if we're going to show them, how can we do it in the most responsible way? Because I thought instead of not showing that the people, you know, now at this moment in time, it's a really important thing to show given, you know, the Me Too movement and everything that's gone on around that. 
So we are going to, we are going to show them, we're going to have trigger warnings, but we're also, you know, thinking very carefully, I'm going to have other people from a rape crisis center read through my labels and just really kind of address these images in a very careful way. And one thing that's interesting about the print rape that people don't really address either is that it's from this Peasants' War series. And at the beginning, you see these men plowing in a field, sort of in, you know, they've been treated as animals. Then the second print is raped. And then after that is the print outbreak, where there's this, this cry for war. So not only is this, this image is not talked about, but within this context of the series, it's the precipitating event for the revolt. She's raped, and then the revolt happens. You mentioned Happy Colvitz a moment ago and how it's not much addressed today. Um, let's take, for example, Mother with a Child in Her Arm from um, early 1916, interesting date. How, how might we, should we more consider uh, the, the Happy Colvitz side of the oeuvre? <laughs> well, it's, these, I think, have been considered saccharine. And I think even the artist herself at one point called them kitschy. And there is a certain, you know, sweetness and saccharineness to them, but there is a real, you know, human emotion and connection there. And I wanted to put them in the Chicago exhibition because, A, I don't think they're looked at very seriously. They just sort of, you know, they're sort of ignored in the literature in favor of the more tormented Colvitz that people know better. But also there's a real genuine loving tenderness that's shown there that, of course, we see in Mary Cassatt's work, and it's written about all the time. So why isn't it looked at in Colvitz's work? And interestingly, there's there's a video on view at the Getty of Colvitz from the 1930s. And we're going to have that here in Chicago as well. And it's a it's a, a film called Creative Hands. And it's a number of different artists were filmed creating their works of art. And you see Colvitz drawing on, you know, creating a drawing in charcoal. But the very first clip of her is she's smiling and laughing. And I remember the first time I thought, I thought, I thought, oh, wow, it's Colvitz smiling. You know, you think she's a woman who never smiled, but of course she smiled. She had happy days and bad days like anyone else. So I think that's also interesting to include in the exhibition. She's not just this person who's focused on death. Curators, critics, and historians love to consider uh, recent art, art of the present in the context of art history. It seems like it would have been a slam dunk and quite easy for decades worth of of critics, curators, and historians to consider Happy Colvitz mother and child images within the context of, say, you know, the, 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 the Catholic mother and child standard. Did that happen? Not necessarily. I think there was maybe one text I can think of where someone talks about her in relation to the Madonna and child. I think only one or two that I can think of in the many, 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 you know, I'm talking about historical literature, not necessarily contemporary. That seems really weird. <laughs> it's very, it's very surprising. And I, it's something I hadn't really thought about before, certainly not when I was writing my dissertation or in other subsequent work I've done on Colvitz, but I just really kind of, it really struck me on one book and I, I can't even remember the title of it, but it was something like Kate Colvitz mother and children in this one book written about Colvitz during her lifetime, which supposedly only d was discussing Colvitz mother and children doesn't address these issues that doesn't address these images at all. It's just the mournful Colvitz. So having raised at length this issue in the context of Colvitz's work, did you come out of thinking about all this with uh, a way forward, a, a framework perhaps in which you you think we should be addressing her more in the future? I think there's still a lot of work to do with Colvitz. And one thing I find quite interesting in this exhibition is 
for me, it felt so incredibly timely. This to look at her art again, there hasn't been a major exhibition of her work since 1992 in the U.S. There's, there's been definitely some very exciting and important exhibitions. There was one at Smith College a couple of years ago. But in terms of looking at her whole career, and I think there's, you know, every every moment in time interprets Colvitz in a different way. And I feel like now with the hashtag Me Too movement, it seemed like a really important time to look at Colvitz and think about women as political social activists. I, as I read the book, I found myself thinking of the situation the Trump administration has made on America's southern border and the imperative of empathy. Jay Clark, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for including me on your show. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.